We're getting back to our series in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. And, um, and we're going to pray before we start. I, I wanted to add one more prayer request, and that is for our regional fellowship of churches. Their director, David Lunsford, good friend, longtime friend of mine, and his wife, Sue. Uh, she has had cancer, been struggling with it for a number of years, and has been in the hospital for, I don't know, a couple of weeks now, I think. A month, and they named the room after her, actually, <laughs> just kind of as a, a little bit of a, a joke, I guess. But um, we need to pray for her because she's in serious cancer situation, and we're not sure what's going to happen there. So let's pray as we look to the Lord to come back to the uh, Gospel of Mark this morning. Father, we do thank you for your grace. <clears throat> it is a wonderful thing to be able to uh, understand those truths. And I think of our, our good friend, the Lunsford's Regional Fellowship of a tri-state area of churches, of which ours is one. Significant people in our lives and in our churches, we pray for them, and especially Dave as he cares for his beloved wife now, and Susan as she is there in the hospital in the Olympia area, Tumwater area. Bless them, we pray, in a special way, and, and have your, your hand on them these days, we pray, Lord. They need to uh, know you're close by, and we know they do, but we pray for them in the pain that they are enduring, we pray. And bless this morning, we pray in your word as we look at it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you might want to follow along. I'd encourage you to do that. We're in the Gospel of Mark, like I said. And the, stu the subject today is tradition. Have you ever watched the, uh, the movie about Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition, tradition, and uh, that's a very interesting movie. We've been in parts of the world where that kind of thing actually took place, and uh, this very much is, reminds me of that also because the Jews, which are in the, in the movie, uh, is also kind of a remembrance of what's going on here in the Gospel of Mark because it's about Jewish tradition. But you know what? We've got some traditions too. And that's a good thing for us to think about. Well, Mark wrote this gospel. It's the uh, Actually, they think now it's probably the first gospel to be written. It should be in the first order, but uh, those who put it together didn't do that. That's okay. It is one of the synoptic gospels, of which there are three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic because they're similar in form. It's been a while since we've been in... Mark, because I've been out for a while, but um, kind of renew it. And if you're new, that will be helpful too. And so we call it a fast-moving gospel. There are only 16 chapters, about half as many as some of them, some of the other gospels, but fast-moving. And what's, what's Mark's favorite word that we see pop up? Do you remember? Immediately, that's right, immediately. He says that over and over and over, and especially in the earlier chapters, because he's moving fast. So he jumps over a lot of the material that happened in Christ's life and just goes to the important stuff, too. The last time we saw him, he, was, uh, he just fed the 5,000. He was up in the north part of Galilee. He's kind of in the latter part of Christ's ministry of the three years. It's in the latter part of that. He's in Galilee because he's away from Jerusalem where there were threats upon his life during that time. It was the largest miracle that he ever did, but there were more than 5,000. Remember, there were close to 20,000 when you add women and children there. And it got the people's attention. He made, uh, he made lunch for everybody out of just a few fish and some bread. 
And people wanted more of that. How can you feed 20,000 people on a little boy's lunch? It was a miracle. And other things that he did, miracles that he did, people were following him. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him a kind of a ruler that would overthrow the Romans. They were real excited about it. So they followed him all over and they wanted more of that free lunch. It was kind of a prosperity gospel mentality that people had. And that's where we were the last time. So he's in northern Galilee. To the north, that's the, really the kind of the nice part of Israel because it's nice and green. Sea of Galilee is there where the fishermen were. And he left the kind of the northeast part of, the, of that area in Galilee and he went across right after that miracle. He went across to the northwest part of it where Peter's house was. It wasn't very far. He could go in the boat overnight and easily did that. He did that and calmed the waters too. He got to the other side there and people began to follow him again. And the crowds came around him because they wanted more free lunch. That's the setting that we find ourselves in today. And if you remember, actually John chapter 6 picks up on that and tells us something that Mark doesn't bother to bring up to us. And that was that Jesus spoke about the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. Referring back to when they were in the desert centuries before with Moses. And God provided bread. But he said, I am the living bread. And people didn't understand that. They wanted bread you could eat. They wanted physical bread. And so they wanted someone to liberate them from Rome too. So that is the context of what has just happened as we come to verse 1 in Mark chapter 7. Starting a new chapter here. Mark chapter 7. The Gospel of Mark. And there are four sort of like movements or steps in this section that we're going to look today which goes uh, clear through verse 23. But we'll start out with verses 1 through 5. The tradition question is what comes up first of all as Jesus is there. We're going to read just a section at a time rather than the whole group of verses this morning. And so follow along with me in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that would be Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem. Now who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were those who did believe in the resurrection. They were Jewish religious leaders, but they were very, very legalistic. And um, they believed in the resurrection. That's why they say they were fair, you see, as opposed to the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. But the fact that they had come a hundred miles on foot from Jerusalem tells us something. They were very, very concerned about something. It also says there were some Sadducees with them, not all. The Sadducees were a little smarter than the Pharisees. The Pharisees liked their phylacteries. They liked all the things that they wore, almost like a uniform. It hung down. It looked very impressive. But the the scribes were just a little bit different. They were more skilled in writing, and it actually suggests the idea of writing. They were almost like lawyers, legal people in the land of Israel. And they answered to the Sanhedrin, which was a group of uh, about 71 leaders, some of them Pharisees and so forth. It was kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel. And um, scribes, the Pharisees were very skilled at keeping the laws and making extra laws to go with them. 
So they had heard about Jesus. They had heard, I believe, they'd heard about him doing these miracles, and they went up to hear for themselves. Jesus had run with some of these Pharisees earlier, right in Galilee, but I think those were local ones. And now these are ones from Jerusalem, where the more high-ranking ones who are coming up to check out Jesus again. Things were heating up for Jesus. They were watching his disciples. They're looking for every false move. They wanted something to accuse him with. We come to verse 2. Now in verse 2, it says, And had seen, they had seen some of his disciples were eating bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. And I just underlined that word carefully there in the New American Standard. Thus observing the tradition of the elders. Wow. They were watching. And there was a lot of people in the area. There was this big crowd that had come to kind of get some more free stuff from Jesus. They were like prosperity people. They wanted more. But that's not what Jesus was dispensing. He was talking about spiritual things. And it talks about the tradition of the elders here. There were lots of different things they did, and they noticed as the disciples were there, they didn't, they didn't necessarily wash their hands, really. So um, they watched it, and they were observing all these traditions here. But washing regulations were really that which the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees probably too, and then of course the uh, scribes had put together over the years. And the way they washed their hands, at least the traditional way they were to wash their hands, is they got an eggshell and they poured one and a half eggshells full of water on your fingers. And then it kind of, you held your hands up there like this, and it drizzled down and then it would fall off your wrist. If what you were doing wasn't a very important act, like maybe just eating dinner. But if you were eating something that was part of the sacrifices, that was more important, then you would allow it drizzle down to your elbow. And if you by chance actually put your hand down and it ran back down and drizzled off your fingers, the whole process was, was no good. And you had to start over, get another egg, and a poor chicken had to give up an egg and put some more water in it and dip it in your fingers and start all over again to do it right. You did that as many times as you did until it dripped off either your wrist for unimportant events or your elbows for important events. It was really interesting, and not just for the meal, but between courses. If you finished the appetizer, you did it again. You finished the main meal, you did it again, and for dessert or whatever, you know, that's how we would think of it. It was, it, they were encumbered with traditions left and right, and um, keeping their fingers clean. And there were all kinds of other things, And but it really is likely that when the disciples there were... Uh, getting ready to eat, they, uh, they probably, and when it says disciples, it may mean the twelve, or it may mean others that were following Christ that were kind of like them, but not the actual twelve, but they were all together, and certainly the twelve were there, and they were observing these rules. But they probably didn't, the actual twelve probably didn't do that, they probably just, you know, washed your hands, and, you know, and they were ready, ready to eat, you know. They were fishermen, you know. You don't wash your hands like the Pharisees do if you're a fisherman. <laughs> so that's what they probably did. So 
these Jews were like lawyers, these Pharisees, as they came up, and they added law after law after law, and pretty soon by the time of Christ, they had a whole bunch of extra traditions that they had to do. How did that all happen? Well, it's kind of like four steps. First of all, they would comment on the Old Testament, the Old Testament law. It's talking about passages in Genesis and after that. There was lots of laws given there in the Old Testament. And then later on, they would write a policy about it, and that would be number two. And then they would elevate that policy to a form of uh, regulation. It was required now. And then lastly, that regulation would become binding to your conscience, and if you didn't do it, then you were in sin. In sin. That's the kind of legalism that they lived under. And there are people like that today. In churches. Verse 4. Now verse 4. It says, And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. Talking about these people, you know, and what the laws were doing. And there are many other things. Now underline that many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers. So, this is just, a, this is just kind of an example. There's so many, you, Jesus didn't even comment on it, you know, here. But um, if you touch the common person's garment, then you'd have to go and wash again if you were a Pharisee, and you tried to find a place in some places where you even were immersed in some cases. It was that serious. They spent a lot of their, wife, their lives uh, taking showers and washing, you know. That's pretty much the way it was. And there were laws not only with dealing with washing your hands, but with your, with your utensils, your cups, and so forth. Now, I don't like to wash dishes necessarily, but I do now. Um, I do like to help my wife. And we have a dishwasher. I'm not talking about my wife. I'm talking about our dishwasher at home. It's kind of helpful, you know. But uh, it is helpful to have things like that. But there was a lot of washing going on, even with the pots and pans, the cups and pitchers and the copper pots, talking about the basic things that they used there. It must have been difficult. But they had laws about those too as well. And the Mishnah, the Mishnah was a compilation of some of these laws, not in the Bible. This is outside the Bible now. The Mishnah was a compilation of those in about the third century AD where there were just about washing your pots and pans, there were 30 chapters. 30 chapters, 3-0. You heard me right. That's how many laws it had when it came to washing your dinner dishes. Isn't that amazing? They were caught up into tradition. Now we come to verse 5. Verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes, these are the ones that came from Jerusalem, they asked him, that's Christ, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Two important distinctions to keep in mind as we look at this. You see, he mentions here the tradition of the elders. But there's also something else that's mentioned in the scriptures sometimes and when it says, it is written. They're not talking about their tradition of the elders. They're talking about the Old Testament. They're talking about what they, they had at the time. 
probably the laws of uh, the book of Genesis and Exodus and places like that. If it says it is written, usually Jesus is the one who would say that. He's referring to that. And Jesus never violated any of that Old Testament even once. Never violated it once. But the other thing that you need to keep in mind was the tradition of the elders, on the other hand. And that was what was added to Scripture. It wouldn't be found in the scrolls where the Bible really is that we would have today in your Bibles. But they were added laws, like I said. They had lots of them. Now, how did they develop? First of all, there was the halakha, which was what the Jews made as uh, kind of like man-made laws of oral teachings that the Pharisees followed. But it was really kind of hard to enforce that. That was the lowest level, and probably the first level. And then eventually the Mishnah developed, and that was in about the third century, because you see the Pharisees don't go back that far. They go back to the time between the Old and the New Testament. They called that the intertestamental period. And they had become rather significant by the time of Christ, and were considered to be kind of the leaders of Israel. So that was the Mishnah, uh, which really means study by repetition. And then there was the Talmud. You've probably heard that term, the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, and refers to instruction. And uh, that contained both civil and ceremonial laws on top of what the Bible actually had. And there was the Palestinian and the Babylonian Talmud, one was from about, uh, I think, the 3rd, 4th century, and the other was from about the, five, the 5th century, or right in that period, A.D. So these things developed after the time of Christ. In fact, it was a massive body of laws that they have developed, these traditional laws. And I read that says that if you took the Talmud, which you can find today, uh, it has about 2,711 pages to it. That's about three times as much as you have in your just basic Bible. And that's just the stuff that was on the outside to kind of supposedly help you keep on track. And that's a good point, too, because it was there to build a fence around the actual law. That was the idea. That was a word that they used, the fence. These laws are like a fence around God's word in the Old Testament that they had at the time. And this fence was something they were trying to keep up, and by the time of Jesus, it was fairly significant that it wasn't as fully developed as it is now, but nevertheless, it was there, and they saw these disciples eating, and when they saw the disciples eating with unwashed hands, in their opinion, they thought they had something they could nail Jesus with. So, when you add to God's law, when you add to God's law, it is said that you subtract from God's law. You get that? It's been said that if you add to the Scriptures, what you're, ex what you're essentially doing is subtracting from the Scriptures. There are other religious groups in our day and age that add to the Scripture. They put the doctrines and covenants and the books of Mormon and so forth and so on as additional. That essentially subtracts from it. That's why they do respect the scripture, but only as far as it was quote-unquote accurately translated, they say. There are other groups. That's just a common one that everybody knows about. It's good to keep in mind. It's not the same 
doctrine as what the Bible strictly gives on its own there. So when you add to God's law, you subtract to it. You subtract from it. Not a good thing. So uh, churches have had their own lists. I'd say evangelical churches sometimes have had their own lists of sinful things that traditionally were not acceptable. And as I grew up, and some of you who grew up back in wherever different parts of the country, you'll, you'll, you'll identify with some of these. There were some that uh, had all kinds of ideas about various traditions that only pastors can lead a communion service. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. You should be a godly person, obviously, but know what they're doing and why they're doing it and explain it. But a pastor doesn't have to do that. Or perhaps baptize someone. You could do that too. That's a possibility. But doesn't have to be a pastor that baptizes people. And we've had people baptized here, not by me, but by other persons, not by Chris either. On occasion it's happened, and we allow that. But there are some traditions that just sort of develop with time because people um, think you got to do it this way and you got to do it that way, you know. And then there's things that sometimes are kind of like that too. Uh, having a cross up in front of the church, that's kind of a tradition. The Bible doesn't say you have to do that. In fact, if you go into the countries of Eastern Europe where there was much persecution and you go to solid churches there, that's offensive to have a cross up front. It's not a good thing because it reminds them of the Orthodox Church and their gospel of work salvation. So they tend to shy away from that. So we have to kind of be careful. Nothing wrong with it here in the States. We, we, we love to see the cross because of what it represents, but it represents something different in other parts of the world. What about uh, the tradition of Sunday worship? Do we have to worship on Sunday? No. The Bible doesn't say that. We find the early church worshiping on Sunday because that was the day Christ was resurrected on. In the Old Testament was Saturday, but that was something that we believe with the death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. Therefore, the Old Covenant is gone. We don't need to do that. In fact, in the New Testament, there's no requirement to worship on the Sabbath or on Sunday. You can worship any day you want to. You can worship in the middle of the night. It doesn't have to be 11 in the morning. And um, you can worship early, late, whatever. Those are just traditions not just 11 a.m. only. I know that when we started, we started our first services here in this building, we had 11 o'clock services, I mean 11.30, uh, 10.30 services, and people would say, oh, why not 11? Well, what chapter and verse is that? It's not that I don't mean to be facetious, but we need to understand what is required and what is not required. Well, we come to point number two now. Point number two, Christ reveals the heart of these Pharisees who drawn up all of these laws of tradition. Verse six, verse six says, and he, that would be Jesus, said to them, that would be to the Pharisees and Sadducees, is rightly did Isaiah's prophecy of you hypocrites, circle that word or underline it, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their hearts are far away from me, but in vain you but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of 
men. That's from the Old Testament. That's from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And Jesus called that to mind. That had been written down, given about 700 years before. And they knew well what Isaiah said. And so that was a stinging rebuke to these Pharisees and Sadducees as he read that. He called them, nobody called them, hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now take this, this is a good thing to discuss in your salt groups this, this week, whenever it is, today or the, later in the week. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. The word refers to that which is like an actor. He acts out something that he is not. That's basically by the definition of the word in the way it is in, in the Greek. It's kind of a play act. He puts on a mask and looks like one thing, but what he really is down inside is totally something else. Their lips may say the words, but it really isn't what they mean because they're just acting it out. And Jesus calls these, these religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, you are hypocrites, you're just actors is what he says. And you know who the main person is who uses that word in the Scripture, in the New Testament? It's Jesus. He's the only one that ever used it. He's the only one that ever used it. It occurs about 16 times in the synoptic Gospels there, and once in the book of Mark, like I say, immediately is Mark's, Mark's uh, kind of idea of doing things, and, and it's only mentioned in this one place, but it is a powerful one. And get this, in all 16 places where it is mentioned, it's always referring, it's mentioned by Jesus in every case, but it's also always referring to the religious people, to their leaders like these Pharisees. In other words, someone said it's always referring to church folks, if we think of it in our way. Not about the world out there that doesn't care about it. It's about the people who were those who worshipped it. That's kind of convicting, isn't it, when you think of it? We need to take a long look at that. And that brings a question up here as we talk about these ideas of being a hypocrite. What is in our life that might make us hypocritical? What makes us like an actor where we're acting out something but down inside we're not really following? Well, I began to think about it. Nancy and I um, discussed this a little bit. And um, daily devotions. Do you ever read your daily devotions and then not know what you read? That's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? Your mind is off on a dozen other things. Or what about worship and singing when Paul was leading us this morning? Were you tracking with that or were you tracking with dinner this afternoon? It's a little bit that way, isn't it? Did you sing the words but your mind and lips were really elsewhere? Were you just acting? What about when you pray? What about when you pray? What about when Zach led us in prayer this morning? Were you following that or were you praying in your mind with it? And I have to say that sometimes I've had a struggle with that, but I've got an excuse because I'm the pastor. And I've got lots of things to watch over. But you know you need to be praying for pastors too, that they can focus on the right thing. Because it's not always easy to do. 
And Jesus said, Matthew 6, he says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. That's in, that's in Matthew. That's a different location where you find the word. Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue. They were religious people, so that's obviously those same kind of people there. And on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Uh, you know, sometimes I have to admit, I have a hard time praying sometimes. Just by quietly. So I have to go outside and walk around and pray audibly. And um, fortunately, my neighbors don't live too close. But I find that a, a better way to keep focus on it because humanly speaking, as sinners, we're saved by grace, but we still are sinners and we have a struggle with that. So how are you when you're listening to a message? Are you tracking along? Is it just a face that you've got? You're, you've got your eyes up front, and you've got your Bible open in front of you maybe, and, and you're taking notes in the, in the little note page that's uh, in your bulletin, but are you really tracking? That's kind of a bad thing, you know, and it's, it's kind of like being a hypocrite there. And, and, and what about praying before a meal? Is that just a rote thing that you do, or do you really mean that? Do you really pray that God would bless the food and then you dig in? Or do you really mean that? Or is it just a ritual? You say, it's something you do. Now we, we teach our children, we taught them all to pray for meals and so forth. And I understand when they're little, they want to pray. Sometimes they call it to our attention if we forgot and they start pulling their hands together. Of course, all our kids are up and gone. Now we have the grandkids to work with and you just have to be careful because they really are just kind of in the traditional mode but we want to teach them the real way and what it's all about we're talking to God because God gave us this food and of course what about baptism and what about giving to the church is there a kind of rule that you follow that you give to the church but you really don't have your heart in it I've got to give 10% by the way, it doesn't say we have to give 10%. 10% is mentioned in the New Testament, but not in regard to, um, the tithe is not in regard to free will giving. Free will giving is means of the New Testament. It's whatever percentage God leads you to give. There's no requirement there. Giving to the church. Is your heart in it when you put it in the box? And that's why we'll use the box, because it's not something that you're, um, trumpeting to the world when you put your offering in the box right there in the back. It's supposed to be between you and God, and that's where you worship there also. Well, they honor God with their lips, but their hearts were far from it, and the New American Standard translate the Hebrew word, their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, by rote, quoting Jesus was quoting, quoting actually from the Septuagint there when he was talking, talking about the Old Testament translation that was not the Hebrew translation, but it was the translation in Greek that was from the Hebrew there. So the most dangerous form of legalism really is when people replace God's laws with tradition, and that's exactly what these people had done. Tradition became the bottom line for them. They knew the Old Testament too. And then we come to the third point here this morning. The third point. It's about our lips. Verse 9, it starts in verse 9 there. How our lips may actually deceive us. 
And we have to apply this to ourselves. It's not just about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We can tend to be in that boat sometimes, and I include myself. The scripture is a good check on that. So it talks about the lips being deceptive here in verses 9 through 13. Starting in verse 9, verse 9 he says, He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandments of God. Now notice, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's adding something to them that he was saying. He says he was also saying to them, he's got a, he's got a little thing he's going to challenge them with here. He says, you were experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. In other words, he's saying, you would set aside what Scripture actually says so that you can do what uh, you want to do with your traditions. You put the traditions above the Scripture. Like we said, like we said, whenever you add, add tradition to the Scripture, you take something from the Scripture away from that, unfortunately. So he says in verse 9, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, now look at this, verse 10, pay attention. For Moses, who was Moses? He was the lawgiver from the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, we find it in Exodus, and the first five books are the books of Moses, the Pentateuch it's called. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. I like that. Don't you? Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. That was one of the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? If you put your father, if you did not take care of your father and mother, if you did not honor them and speaks evil of them, obviously in a way that was unrepentant and obviously in a very, very pointed and perhaps bad way, you could get the death penalty from that. That's pretty serious stuff. Pretty pointed example. But this was really a loophole that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had worked on so they could get around it. So, verse 10 really is quoting from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. You can read it there if you want to. And he's quoting the fifth commandment about honoring parents. That was God's social security program. Did you know that? That's God's social security. That's how you take care of your elders. You take care of them when they get old. They may have to come in and live with you. We've informed all of our children about that many times. And um, we don't want to go live if we don't have to, but if we need to, it's fine. And I hope that they would be open to that. We were open to Nancy's mother when she was in her last days. Come live with us. She didn't want to. She lived on a dairy farm 150 miles south of us. We went and got her, and she came live with us, and she died with us. It was a wonderful thing to be able to do that. All of our parents have died uh, over, what, 30, 40 years ago? We have no parents left for a long period of time. We were late bloomers in the, in the process of our parents having children there too. So he's quoting there, and this is God's social security program. I've, I'm on social security, by the way, and I've been careful to use it wisely, I think we have been, and so that we do have some income, but uh, you know, not, a, not totally as, as much as we would perhaps want to, but... but um, 
in the Old Testament, it was up to the children to take care of the kids. Not a bad thing to teach. But now we come to verse 11. Verse 11. And they twisted this law. So this is the law from the Old Testament. It's the fifth commandment. You shall take care of your parents, basically. Now in verse 11, he says, But you say, this is what the Pharisees now said on top of that. He says, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you, that, in other words, whatever money that I have, income that I have, valuables I had, that I should use with you or for you to take care of you in your old age. He says, if I say that that is Corban, that is to say given to God, no longer permit me to do anything for his father or mother. Now that may be a little confusing to you. I've read that over times, over the years, a number of times. I thought, what is exactly he's saying? And if you look at it carefully, this is basically what's going on here. The Pharisees had maneuvered around the Old Testament law that said you're supposed to take care of your parents. And they knew that that was a law and it was even punishable by death if you failed or were disrespectful to your parent. It was a pretty serious law. So they maneuvered around it because there was this word called Corbin. We have our regional uh, university down in Salem where I went to school. It's called Corban University. The word Corban means, as you know in verse 11, at the end it says, given to God. So if you said, Corban means given to God. So if you pulled some money out your out of your pocket that was um, you're going to use for your parents, and you say, "Well, this is Corban because I have dedicated to God, and I am a spiritual leader in Israel. So this goes for caring for me and not for you, not for you as a parent." So they had a loophole, and supposedly they would use it for spiritual things, or they would just use it for their own uh, lust, perhaps. We don't know exactly how that would be, but they got around the idea of caring for their their parents is what was going on here. So, in other words, they couldn't help their parents with the needs that they might have because they had dedicated this money with the word Corban to some other ministry that they thought would be better, which really wasn't God's plan. It's a loophole that they had developed. They were experts at the law. Christians can be experts at those laws sometimes too. and It's easy to get confused. Verse 13, it was a twisting of the law there. Verse 13 goes on to say, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. That wasn't the only thing. Corbin was just an example of it. There are many, many things we couldn't even begin to start talking about some of those kinds of things that they would do, Jesus was saying. They invalidated the Scripture. There's an important hermeneutic when we talk about these kinds of things, and you need to have some understanding of what hermeneutics is. It's the science of interpreting Scripture. There is kind of a science so you can interpret what the Bible says and understand what it really means and not just what you think it means. It always has a purpose of being there. It's given by God. It's inspired. Every word of it in Scripture is inspired. But we need to understand what that actually means and not be confused by it and give the wrong meaning of what it's saying. So part of the important task of pastors, those who preach the word, is to have a good understanding of hermeneutics, hermeneutics 
so that you can tell what the original author's intent was when that was written as God gave it. In our case, it was probably Peter who spoke to Mark who wrote that down, so Mark would have been the author too, of course. And uh, what we see here is God's word. It's been understood to be that way down through the centuries since the time of Christ. So there are two basic rules, two basic rules of interpretation. It's said that we should be aware of. Since scripture is inspired, it's logical that no portion of scripture must ever be set against another portion. So uh, we like the verse in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is... What? Inspired, NASB, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, for the instruction or training in righteousness. So the first rule basically is a, it's called regular fidia, um, is that we have to understand that scripture is all inspired by God. There's not portions of it that are not. It's all inspired by God. It was given in that sense. And if you look at Scripture as you see it as a whole and begin to compare verse by verse, you see and understand that. And there's lots of study you can do on that. The second rule here in hermeneutics that's very important is that God does not speak with a forked tongue, as some have said, as Satan does. What God reveals is always consistent with whatever other place in the Scripture God has revealed something. So if you see something in the Old Testament, and then you see something in the New Testament, you say they don't, they don't go together. But if you look carefully and understand the flow of things, you see that they do go together, and they are meant to be together, and they are meant to be part of a process of understanding the whole of God's counsel. So, we must be careful to honor our elders also, I'm talking about our older families, and not use the term Corben to get out of that. Like I said, our families, our elders are all gone, but um, we're probably the elders now that are next on the list. But we don't, we don't want to change the scripture. We don't want to change the stripper, scripture. There's a, there's a little story about, a, about a, a farmer. He was showing his other friend around his farm, and he had a big barn, and the barn was outside, and they were walking by the barn, and there, was, uh, there were arrows in the barn, like somebody had shot them randomly, and they were all over the place, and there was a bullseye around each of them, and the arrow was always right in the center of the bullseye. And they, the visitor guessed, said, well, wow, you must be a pretty good shot. How do you do that? And he said, well, I shoot the arrow first, and then I paint the bullseye around it, you know. That's what the Pharisees were doing, wasn't it? That's what they, they made it fit their particular need there. Well, we have to be careful about that. We've looked at the traditional question here to start off with, and then Christ revealing our heart issues here, and then how lips can deceive us. And now lastly, what really defiles the person? What really defiles the person, 14 through 23. The source of our defilement is mentioned, first of all, here in verse 14. Jesus now calls the crowd to him again. And it's, it's kind of like those other characters took off, perhaps, you know, I think there. And um, 
He called the crowd to them again and he began to explain some things. He says he was saying to them, listen to me, all of you. The crowd is, this is the big crowd probably here. Some of them had left, but for the most part it was a big crowd. He's he's addressing the whole group of people that are there. Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of the man which can defile him. If it goes into him, You can't defile him, in other words. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And then the phrase, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, pay attention. Pay attention to this. There's a small pause, really, here. Probably the Pharisees and the Sadducees scattered, probably prior to this, I would guess, And Jesus calls the rest of this crowd for this little note. He said, listen to me here. And the essence of his message is we all have a heart problem. A spiritual problem. Man is sinful from the garden. If you know the story, man is sinful from the garden. He he was sinless when he started, and Adam and Eve came along, and then the first thing that happened after they got married was they were tempted by Satan with the tree, and they disobeyed God's law, which was a test to them, and then sin came into the world, and their kids started killing each other. And sin entered the world. People say, how can terrible things happen like we see in the wars where our son-in-law was killed? We live in a sinful world. And if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you cannot be damaged by that. It's a sinful world we live in, too, today. You know, when we had our kids, they were all born, they were all cute, and they all looked perfect, but you know what? They started disobeying us. I can say that now because they've shaped up. (laughs) But um, you soon realize that little child has got something that you didn't give him. Well, you did give it to him, actually, because you're a sinner, too, and so they're sinners, and you're a sinner because Adam and Eve were a sinner, and on and on and on. So we have a sin problem here very clearly. It's a heart problem. Until we submit to Jesus Christ, it's about Jesus. That's what he's saying there. And when he's going to come back with his spiritual reign, he's going to come back in his second coming. He's going to take over eventually. And the talks about a millennial time when he's going to rule and reign the earth. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But the sin will be dealt away with eventually. And then we won't have that problem anymore. It's not that, a pro- that problem is not in heaven, by the way. Praise God for those who have gone on to heaven ahead. But we are still waiting for that opportunity. Verse 18, or excuse me, verse 17, when he had left the crowd, verse 17, there's kind of uh, some, dis- some confusion here now by the disciples. When he had left the crowd, uh, he entered the house. That's probably Peter's house. It's right there in Capernaum. Pretty nifty place. You can actually see it today. They believe they actually found it, been there. His disciples questioned him. That was the, probably the 12 and probably some of the others. They were now at the house, and um, they questioned him about this parable, and he said to them in verse 18, now look at this carefully, what he says while he's at Peter's house, he says, are you lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart? He's talking about the spiritual heart, not the physical pump. 
but it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. And if you eat something, if you eat something that's unclean, some kind of an unclean animal, you know, as they would have, the, according to the Old Testament, you can eat that, but it doesn't really make you defiled. Because it doesn't affect your heart. It's only your insides, and then, you know, pretty soon it passes out. Thus, he, that's Jesus, declared all foods clean. Now, that's really a significant statement. If you remember, there were some foods that were clean and some that were unclean in the Old Testament, and you were not to eat the unclean ones because it was symbolic of something. But now he declared all things clean. And if you remember later on in the book of Acts, when Peter was at Joppa, he was worried about all those rules and regulations because he was going to be with some Gentiles. And God brought a sheet down from heaven with all these animals that were clean and unclean animals on that top of that sheet. And the, the voice said, eat, everything's okay to eat. You mean I can eat the unclean stuff? Yep, you can eat that. And the clean stuff? Yep, you can eat that. What about that over there? You can eat that. Wow, I've always been wanting to eat that, you know, so now I get to eat it. So the things change with the New Testament because now we're under the New Covenant. And Peter was just getting a hint of that, but this was still... Actually, you know, it's, it's Peter that probably told uh, Mark this as he wrote it down. And he's remembering that event. I think that's very possible there. So that means you can eat all kinds of things. They won't hurt you. Hamburgers, milkshakes, candy, cake, pie. Eat up, you know. It's not going to hurt you spiritually. Now, I won't say anything about physically. You could be in trouble there. We were, I did a wedding yesterday and I had a piece of cake that thick. That was the backside before it became a wedge. But Nancy helped me eat it. So, anyway. So, don't worry about being poisoned by food. Food poisoning won't happen, spiritually speaking, by eating physical food. It actually may help you grow a little bit physically, but it's what you put into your heart spiritually that's the problem. And your heart is where it comes from, ultimately, because we're sinners, we're lost. We're lost. And the wickedness of the heart is the last section we're going to look at, verses 20 through 23. This is the, the last little section here. This is a hard-hitting couple of verses here. It's a catalog of all the evil that is in our heart. You can find this kind of thing also in Romans 3 where you have a list like that from the Old Testament. It says, Jesus was saying, keep in mind, these are the disciples. These are some of his close people, the ones who really followed him. They still didn't get it. They'd been with him for most of three years. And it took a long time for them to really grasp it. You don't have to obey those ceremonial laws. Verse 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. He's not talking about going to the bathroom here. He's talking about that which comes out of the heart, the wickedness in things that we do here. Verse 21, for from within, from the heart of man, our sinful heart, because we were born sinners, and we come to Christ and we repent of the fact that we're sinners because we begin to realize how wicked we really are as you and I have done if you are a believer. And you ask him to forgive you of your sin and he does immediately if you really mean it from the heart, if it's not just words. 
and you are washed. He gives you His righteousness and He takes our sin and died on the cross for us. But, that doesn't mean we still don't sin anymore. We still do sin because that still is there to a degree, but it's all forgiven. It's under the blood of Christ, as we would say. Verse 21, For within, within, that's where the heart is, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So if you go up to the hospital and you have a CAT scan or a MRI, which I did last summer, it's not going to show this kind of stuff because it's only talking about the physical. But if you had a spiritual CAT scan, this is it. This is it. This is you. This is your inside. Read Romans 3 this afternoon. It starts out with talking about your head and the evil that's there and your feet and it goes from head to toe. It's a full scan. It's not just one part of you. And um, it's pretty serious stuff. You can't say, well, I'm not that much of a sinner. God's going to accept me. You know, I, yeah, I did some little stuff, but that's no big deal. Little stuff is a big deal with God, as well as big stuff. Let's look at a couple of those, a couple of those words. Evil thoughts, um, that's, it all, that's where it all begins. And our thinking, that's kind of a good one. That's really internal, isn't it? It begins with our thinking. It's kind of interesting that the order that God gave it to us. Evil thoughts come from the heart. And you can be sitting and looking something and you can have some evil thoughts about that without ever really touching. Thoughts are sins too. Unless you cut it off right away and deal with it need to talk to yourself sometimes. You don't have to do it audibly, you can do it internally. Fornication. And that's the second one on the list. That's sex outside of marriage. Pornonia. Pornonia is the idea. From which we get the word pornography. Fornication is not talking about adultery, it's talking about people who are not married having sex with other people. And um, today it's just considered okay, you know. We'll get married. We'll live for a while together. And uh, it'll be okay. Everybody's doing it. Well, can't we justify it that way? It is a wide meeting. Thefts. Well, there was one of the disciples that had a problem with that. His name was Judas. Judas. He was a thief. Murderers, that's obvious. That's capital punishment. Would be given for that in the Old Testament. It still applies today. Adulteries, that's the next step in the sex thing. And that's where you're unfaithful to your spouse. Adultery. And by the way, adultery can be applying even without going outside the house because it can be in the mind. In the mind. Very serious stuff that Jesus gives here. This is a catalog that doesn't stop. It's showing the inside. It's a CAT scan. It's an MRI of our insides. Deeds of coveting and so forth. And deceit. Words of trickery is the idea there. The wickedness here is an interesting word describing Satan, some believe too, and on down the list. Pride towards the end and foolishness. Some things we don't think of so much as bad, but God wants us to enjoy life and have a good time and laugh too, but we have to be careful not to push ourselves up to the top or add 
foolish things to these. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. We have to examine our hearts, don't we? We're going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to examine your heart while we do that. Probably should have had communion this morning as we thought about that, but that will prepare us for next week. That will prepare us for next week. We should have our hearts checked from time to time. Read the Romans 3 passage also and compare it to verses 20 through 23 there. God is working on our lives, and if you are not sure about your salvation, Remember what Jesus said, you must, be born, you must be born again, John 3, verse 7. He said very clearly, you must be born again. You need a spiritual life given to you by God because you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That doesn't mean we'll never sin again but it means we have a means to deal with it now. And Jesus said, I am. I am the great phrase that refers to the God of the Old Testament. I am, Jesus said, the bread of life that came down. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these words. These are convicting words for all of us. We have our traditions that we think ought to be done this way or that way and how we worship, whether we raise our hands or don't raise our hands or the songs we sing or the hours that we meet, all those kinds of things. But you've given us a lot of latitude in our worship. And may we check our hearts out and make sure we're tracking with what's going on spiritually and we're not tracking with our cell phones or where our minds are or what we're going to do, but we're tracking with what God says as we gather together to read the scripture or pray or, or listen to a message. May your hand be honest. May we not be actors like the Pharisees and the scribes were. May you speak to our hearts this week and, and guide us in our salt groups tonight and this week. May you bless, we pray. If anyone has any question, May they be willing to come and speak with us. Any of our elders, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.